Is it time for a mind shift? If you don't know what that means, then join your host, Dr. Clint Haycock, a former evangelical Christian pastor and Bible college teacher of over 20 years, along the journey of deconstruction and reconstruction of faith, life, religion, and spirituality. I'm super happy to welcome back returning guest David Johnson. I'm trying to think when you were on the show before. It's been almost a year, I think, maybe more. So welcome back, David, to Mindshift Podcast. Thank you. Uh, Excited to be here. Oh, man, I'm excited to dive into this topic that we're going to be talking about, a Christian defense of slavery, and I'm sure that's going to lead us down a lot of rabbit trails. But recently, I've been on your new show because... You used to host the Skeptics and Seekers podcast, but as I understand it, you're no longer doing that. What are you doing nowadays in the podcast world? Well, I'm actually still doing Skeptics and Seekers, but it's a little bit different. So it's Skeptics and Seekers Sunday Sermon, 4S. Right. And uh, what I do, uh, I do it as a solo show most weeks, although from time to time I uh, will have a guest, but the uh, thrust of the show now, rather than a conversation between a Christian and atheist, is I play a sermon every week, uh, something from, you know, the, the Christian side of things. And it's either a sermon, sometimes it's a discussion. Uh, I I don't mind doing a, a, you know, some other type of lecture, but it's a Christian talking for a while. And I commentate. <laughs> right. You break it down. Yeah. A kind of a Pine Creek style uh, thing with a sermon every week. Sometimes it's a modern sermon. Sometimes it's a classic sermon from someone like Billy Graham. Uh, but the idea is to actually show people what it is Christians are saying, what they're teaching from the pulpit, what they've been teaching from the pulpit forever. Uh, this is a... Um, a no straw man zone. Do not accuse me of straw man. <laughs> right. hey, I, let them speak will, in their own words. Let them speak literally. in their own words. This is literally what they are saying. <laughs> right. So if you have a problem with it, you don't have a problem with me. You have a problem with them. Now, oftentimes that show, um, that's the sermon that I'll do that week, has something to do with the subject that we've talked about on Red Letters. You mentioned that, uh, patreon.com slash red letters, if anyone's interested. You can pick up a free copy of my book there, um, Red Letters, A Closer Look at the Worst Practical and Moral Teachings in History. It's a good book. Grab it for free. Uh, if you want to say so yourself. Our week, and, um, and uh, you can... You can cancel any time. You can still keep the book. Absolutely. Yeah, I've been on Red Letters so a couple of times. It's a yeah. great book. It's a great book. Best no bias. What read all? <laughs> You're completely objective, David. There's absolutely zero bias coming from you right now. I'm not right. sensing any. I don't know what you're talking about, but yeah, I've read the book. We we've been on Red Letters a couple times in the last few weeks as we're doing this recording. Now I've thoroughly enjoyed breaking down. What we talked about why you think Jesus is not necessarily the greatest teacher that ever lived. And then we talked about family values, which got us into all kinds of stuff last last week when we did that recording. 
So really enjoyed talking with you. And then we had Andrew Knight, isn't it? Who was also on. Yes. Which I think he's a, a frequent guest. It was a little bit off-putting. It was on, uh, ironic. He was on a, on a, like a mobile phone, a cell phone yes. in the park with his daughter. So talk about family values. He didn't want to miss the podcast, but yet the sound quality may not have been the greatest. You said at one point, are you milking a moose there or what, what are you doing? <laughs> he was pushing his daughter on a swing while he was trying to talk. Yeah, um, Andrew has uh, has certain. He does. By the way, he does uh, a podcast of his own. Still unbelievable. You can find his stuff at ReasonPress.net, um, and uh, you can see some stuff there. You can see, um, uh, yeah, lots lots of stuff like that. But he doesn't he doesn't um, sweat audio quality in the way that I do. Uh, so I I I'm an old audio engineer guy and so i care about it in ways that most people just don't they they're incapable of caring in fact we're late uh on the show because of various audio things and so i'm I'm doing something right now that most people wouldn't do just to get better sound quality and if you take the audio that i send you by email it's going to sound great otherwise right. it'll sound, sound better than my normal guy and that just that irks me <laughs> so <laughs> He doesn't care about any of that, yeah. um, and I, he doesn't sweat it, right? He's got he's got other things to prioritize, and um, I can tell you the secret to one of the secrets to great audio is how much money are you willing to sink into it? That's true, not much, not a red cent, <laughs> a mobile phone, and that's pretty much it. At the park, I was absolutely fine in his book. Yeah, I'm I'm not as as like you know I'm not as hardcore as you, but. I'm trying to improve my audio as much as I can with the budget that I've got. So yeah, that's kind of where, in fact, you were giving me some helpful tips last week. So I think that's improved hopefully a little bit, just a little bit, my audio. You sound so Thanks for that. Yeah. yeah. I, 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 I try not to harsh on people for audio issues. Most people are not professional podcasters or broadcasters or have any background in that. And they just have something to say and they're passionate about it. And they, they get on the mic and say it. It's and true. That's fan- that's fantastic. Uh, grab a mic, say something, and uh, share it with someone who cares. Yeah. Uh, so, you know that. Let that be the first priority. If you want to build an audience, however, you're gonna have to do a little bit more. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. So I'm working through those issues now. But getting back to our topic now, this is my sort of context. So I, I, we talked about a year, year and a half ago. In that podcast, we were talking. We kind of dipped into the history of racism and the Christian church. And you had some fantastic resources there. You've obviously studied that. And one of the stories you told in that episode was how you were in a museum in the South, somewhere in the South, and you came across an authentic KKK, Ku Klux Klan robe. It wasn't a replica. It wasn't, it was the real deal. It had been worn at cross burnings and probably lynchings and other things. That story, I think, is one of the most powerful stories I've ever heard, to be honest with you. And I got a lot of feedback from people that just said, when I heard that, it was chilling when you talked about trying to convince your friend to put the robe on and he didn't want to do it, you know. Worse than the robe, it was the hood. The hood, actually, yeah. Yeah, it was, um, it chills me to think about it even now. Um, and, you know, I knew he wasn't going to put it on, but I mm-hmm. I, I teased him uh, a little bit and pushed him. And he, it, we both, uh, you know, had a a little bit of a feeling of of nausea almost. It was it was so visceral as we 
um, as we looked at the thing, uh, words didn't couldn't couldn't describe it. It's an emotion, a deep emotion. So this is how I got interested in this subject. After we talked, I listened to a podcast. If you, if anyone ever listens to Dan Carlin's Hardcore History, I'm a huge fan of history. I love Dan Carlin's show. He did a show several months ago on the slave trade, and it was about probably five, six hours long, classic Dan Carlin, five, six hour episode. In that episode, he was talking about sort of the, the general overview of the slave, the transatlantic slave trade. And he started getting into Frederick Douglass and some other uh, former slaves who had written biographies of their experiences. And the thing that struck me about reading Douglass was that he was talking about specifically Christian slave-owning masters and overseers, and they were some of the cruelest and meanest and harshest people he'd ever come across as a slave. So then I went and found Douglass's book, which actually you can find the whole audiobook for free on Spotify. So I listened to the whole thing for free on Spotify, and I've read a few other books by slave, ex-slaves as well since that time. And then I've come across a guy, I've done a lot of research on this guy named Doug Wilson. Now, he's a pastor out of Moscow, Idaho. He runs Christ Church. He's building sort of a cult-like empire. Now, he wrote a book, I think it was in 1996, with a guy named Stephen Wilkins. He was the co-founder of this League of the South, which is a racist sort of neo-Confederate organization. They wrote a book called Southern Slavery As It Was, and that was a, a kind of a full-throated Christian defense of slavery. So that's kind of where I'm at with this whole thing. And I wanted to t- tap you as a resource, because obviously this is in your wheelhouse. You've done loads of research on this subject. Yeah, I'll do my best. Yeah. So this is the context that I'm working through, and I've gone into this thing. Uh, I, I, it's down a rabbit hole, but what I found is I read an article by a couple of Canadian scholars a few years ago, and it was on this subject called the Theological War Thesis. So have you heard of the Theological War Thesis? No. Okay, so what the Theological War Thesis is, this is basically a Christian defense of slavery by really Southern Presbyterian pastors and theologians before the Civil War. So when slavery was being questioned by abolitionists and so forth in the North and in other parts of the world, these guys came out with a full-throated biblical defense of slavery, and their sort of portrayal of the American Civil War was that they said, well, it was Northern aggression. The North was heretical. The North was godless. The South was actually the only true Christian nation left. We're a godly nation, and slave-owning was all part of that. It was it was all sanctioned by the Bible, and they've got Verses and verses and verses they trotted out to prove, in air quotes, that slavery was sanctioned by God, condoned by the Bible, which it really actually is. And so they said the the war wasn't about economics or anything like that. It was a it was northern aggression against the godly South. And even after the war, this gets picked up by guys like R. Uh, R. J. Rushdoony, the founder of Christian Reconstructionism, and a few other people. And it's now made its way into Christian homeschooling curriculum. It's made its way into Doug Wilson, who is a kind of a Christian Reconstructionist, and so that he has this homeschooling curriculum empire. So this these ideas are going into, right now as we're talking, into the Christian homeschooling world. They have been for a long time now. So the, these are my concerns, for, among others, that you know, you got generations of Christian homeschool kids who are being exposed to this sort of neo-Confederate idea. And there's a there's an inbuilt racism, obviously, in the whole thing, which I think you you must have a lot to say about. 
Well, yeah. Let me let me ask you a question uh, though on this this war. Theory. Yeah, theological war thesis. Yeah, the theological war thesis. Uh, so, if it's northern aggression, what was the North aggressing for? It, it's because it's not like the South had many rich resources or a or a strong economic system. The the truth about uh, the uh, Southern economic situation during the uh, time of the Civil War it was that they were they were dying on the vine anyway. Yeah, uh, slavery was never a sustainable system. It was um, uh, it was a, a terribly bad system, and um, you know the cotton gin was a a useful thing. Cotton cotton was the big um, cash crop of the South. Some say the cotton gin actually prolonged slavery longer than it would have. Mm -hmm. It would have died under its own weight because it's not a terribly sustainable economic system. And so the South was already in pretty bad shape and they didn't have anything that anyone would envy. So in this theory, what was the North aggressing over? What were they, <laughs> what, what would have been the point? Well, what the argument is, it's a theological war. So this article by, it's a couple of professors, Sebesta and Haig, and they say the theological war the thesis is defined like this, quote, it is an assessment that interprets the 19th century CSA, Confederate States of America, to be an Orthodox Christian nation and understands that the 1861 to 1865 U.S. Civil War to have been a theological war of the future of American religiosity fought between devout Confederate and heretical Union states, end quote. So that's the actual theological war thesis. So out of that comes the, the ideas like the Confederate flag, statues. These are actually symbols of Christianity. So if you reject them, you're actually rejecting Christianity itself. So they've recast the whole thing as a theological war. It's not necessarily about slavery per se or economics. Very strange thesis. I, I must say, I don't want to get stuck here. <laughs> get stuck in the weeds. I, I, we're already... <laughs> we're already in the weeds. Oh, right. But, Let's go further but, into the weeds then. <laughs> yeah, I, this this idea that somehow the, the North wanted to go to war with the South over theology yep. is utterly absurd. The North wasn't all that theologically motivated anyway, in, in, any more than they are today. <laughs> so... Um, the South, they were theologically motivated. And so one could imagine the South going to war over theological reasons. It is it is incomprehensible that the that someone would think that the North would have gone to war over strictly theological reasons. Yeah, but that's how they in a way they were kind of they painted themselves in a corner. And the the thing is before the war started, these guys were already articulating. And I think there's an article that's really interesting. If you've heard of David Bart David Barton, he runs a, uh, an organization called Wall Builders out of Alito, Texas. He's probably the leading Christian nationalist, quote unquote, historian in America today. He goes all over the country giving talks about how America was a Christian nation. And he's got all these quotes from the founding fathers and the signers of the Declaration and the Constitution to prove that America was a Christian nation. Now, on his website, he, he has an article, and it's a really interesting thing because the, the problem that the article presents is he says, you know, a lot of people will say, how could America be a Christian nation and allow slavery? 
how could God bless America and allow slavery? And so you can see right away, the, the, this issue has been raised many, many times before. God, Christianity, America cannot be a Christian nation and have slavery. Therefore, if slavery is condoned by the Bible, if it's, if it's okay in God's eyes, that then gives all the argument, all the weight to say, yeah, America was a Christian nation. God had no problem with Southern slavery. And in fact, if the North was going to come against the South for theological reasons, because the North was heretical, now you got a problem, you know, so they can recast the whole thing. Well, okay. Um, that's a stretch, South. Uh, but, mm. uh, okay, I, I, I guess. And I, I will say something that may sound a little scary or radical to the hearer. So here comes the first radical thing out of me. Um, there's actually no good theological reason why slavery shouldn't exist. Today. Biblically? Biblically, yeah. Right, there, yeah. No, the Bible condone, condones slavery, in other words. Well, it, yes, not, not only did it condone slavery, but it didn't do anything to con condemn it down the road. So there's no reason to think right. that God would have changed his mind on that. There is, there is actually no good reason for the Christian today to be anti-slavery. Now, right. I'm glad that they are anti-slavery, but theologically speaking, there's no good reason for a Christian to be anti-slavery. And uh, so if you, if you just kind of sit with that thought for a moment, I know that uh, that's going to lead you into some of uh, some of your research about uh, uh, Christians who indeed are proponents of uh, of slavery, they actually theologically have the right of it. Uh, yeah. And and Christians who make anti-slavery arguments today are actually straining and uh, I think contradicting the text to do it. Uh, so I've I've uh, immersed myself quite a bit in. Um, Christian anti-slavery arguments, because what they would, what, what older Christians used to say about slavery was, well, God condoned it then for those people in that place. So good for them at that time in that place, not good for us in our time in our place. So it was, it was a situational thing. That was, that was kind of the old positioning but the new apologist comes at it in a slightly different way. Mm -hmm. They would say, or at least many of them would say, no, actually, slavery wasn't good for them at that time in that place either. In fact, the Bible never condones slavery. So that, that's, the, that's the wrinkle. So uh, it used to be that, you know, it's so obvious that the Bible condones slavery. Yeah. They, Christians would just own the fact that the Bible condones slavery, but then make an excuse for it. And today, the uh, that doesn't work um, because the the rejoinder of, to that is okay. So if your God could have been that wrong about something that big at that time, there's no reason for me to think that He was right about anything. Uh, so the Christian understands that that's, that argument can't win to say to, to actually condone slavery. And so they take an attack of saying the Bible never condones slavery. And so all those passages that you think you see slavery in, 
you you actually don't. Uh, it's it's not um, it, it's not in fact condoning slavery at all. It's it's a kind of a gaslighting uh, technique, and you know they have they have a few ways of doing it. Maybe we'll talk a, a, about that along the way. Uh, so it's I, I would I would just my response to them and to your audience is uh, look the new apologists are way more wrong than the old apologists and just from a just from a theological point of view you know i'm i'm not a god believer but you know i i've spent my life studying the bible because i was i was in that world for so long there is simply no good reason to be anti-slavery from a biblical theological point of view that you, you can't do it in every Every attempt to do it leads you into either a really bad argument or just bad logic or dishonest, uh, dishonest thinking, um, or or just saying something factually wrong about scripture. And uh, you know, as we go along, we can kind of look at some of the ways that they try to to um, avoid that conclusion. Yes, exactly. And this is the problem you mentioned. Kind of the issue of the biblical inerrancy. That was your illusion biblical inspiration and inerrancy, because what you find, uh, when I read through Southern Slavery as it was, the argument that Wilson and Wilkins are, are the line they're going down, it's not really so much a full-throated defense of slavery, al- although it is that, and I'll read some quotes later on that are quite shocking about how they're, they're glossing over how bad slavery was, but their issue is, as biblical literalists, if you allow any crack in the Bible's inerrancy, infallibility, authority to appear, you're you're in trouble. And therefore, you have to defend slavery because it's condoned in the Bible, right? And they say in their book, I'll read an interesting quote, they say, quote, if those who hate the word of God, meaning atheists and liberals, can succeed in getting Christians to be embarrassed by any portion of the word of God, then that portion will be continually be employed as a battering ram against the godly principles that are currently under our t- under attack. In our day, three of the principal issues are abortion, feminism, and sodomy. And so they won't call gays or, or homosexuals, they say they're sodomites. And what they're arguing is, we can't allow any crack in the Bible to appear, therefore we are now compelled to defend slavery in the South as godly and biblical. Right, and that's that's what I actually call the old apologist approach. Uh, so that that's that's the logical conclusion to the old school way of thinking. Right. The new apologists, once again, they deny slavery ever happened in the Bible, or okay. that it ever don't. So that's this is a, that's the thing that right. uh, that you're having maybe a hard time grasping because you're thinking, how could they deny it? I mean, it says. No, they can, uh, and one of the ways that they deny it is to redefine what slavery is. They redefine the words. Oh, well, you know, you hear slavery and you think Southern slavery, and that's not what was going on in the Bible at all. Um, that's not what God was condoning at all. Um, it's more like indentured servants and that kind of thing. Was it chattel right. slavery? And right, that's that's one of the that's one of the things that they uh, will try to do if. Uh, if there's time and if you'll permit, I'll, I'll look at, uh, we can take a closer look at some of that. But I, I want to actually pursue this line of thought, uh, the, the line of research that you've been on, because that's, 
uh, something that's new to me. I went through and I uh, read some of the, the sources that you uh, linked, but still fairly new to me uh, that there are that there is a, a a fairly modern movement of people who uh, feel like slavery could be defended, you know, a, a form of biblical slavery for today. Now, theologically speaking, that is correct. Yeah. That is social suicide. Um, you, you can't say that out loud and have any credibility in this world. And so uh, it is new to me that people are saying that out loud and gaining credibility. Absolutely. And like I say, Rush Dooney and then later on Doug Wilson, they, these were not the, the first people to champion this in the 1960s and 70s. So it goes a little bit deeper than that. And that's the issue is that, you know, Wilson and Wilkins, there's so many problems with their book academically and all that, because for one thing, okay, Stephen Wilkins, I mentioned before, he was a co-founder of the League of the South, which is a neo-Confederate racist organization. It's been called the Hate Center by the Southern Poverty Law Center. And so what happened, there was such a firestorm over this book that that Wilson dropped Wilkins from the from that edition, took it off the shelves, republished it with a, a kind of a, a sort of a, a what's the word, um, and a historian who has more credibility, and then republished it, and it's now called Black and Tan, and it's a longer, sort of more historically nuanced book, because the problem with Southern slavery as it was for one thing, they they were accused of gross plagiarism. They stole large sections verbatim from another book called Time on the Cross, which was another book in the 70s that was written that was debunked by historians. And what they do, they just quote a guy named R.L. Dabney, who was Stonewall Jackson's chaplain, and they just quote him completely uncritically. And he's, of course, defending slavery as being, it's a wonderful institution. These slaves don't know how good they have it. It was a, It was fantastic. We just loved on them. They loved the masters back. It was great. I don't see what the problem is. You know, so it's it's a gross misreading of history. And that book has been absolutely slated by real historians. Uh, but like I say, it's it's going into Christian homeschooling curriculum. That's a, that's a scary idea. Um, it really let's, is. Let's look at some of the, the pro-slavery arguments that that one might make i know that they have made some of these um i i read countless articles on people defending biblical slavery not uh not defending it in a way that they're saying that it should come back today but i suspect that these same defenses are coming up again and so it's not just in, in case your audience is thinking well it's just a simple you know point to the bible the bible has it the bible's God's word, God's word is good, and so it's okay. All right, that's that's there, but that's overly simplistic. Uh, mm-hmm. There's there's more uh, fueling it than that. So one of the things that is fueling it, and you you can actually get all of these from the Bible too. But socially, these are some of the things that fueled slavery and in the defense of slavery uh, is that the enslaved people are guilty of some type of deep, systematic, um, maybe even genetic sin. Now, in the Bible, this would have played out as uh, the curse of Ham. Mm-hmm. So for those not, figured out, uh, uh, not familiar with the curse of Ham, Ham was one of 
Noah's sons. Uh, Noah, uh, when they hit dry land and the waters receded, uh, he went and planted a vineyard and got stinking drunk, uh, got naked. Uh, Ham looked upon his father and made fun of him. We can uh, we can we can talk about the nuances of, of <laughs> what actually happened. Had been going on there because this is very euphemistic language, but um, and um, you know the Bible uh, says you know he he saw his father's nakedness. Um, you know as as if this is a shameful thing uh so his brothers came in backward with a sheet so that they wouldn't see him <laughs> in his yeah, drunken state right but but ham because he saw him uh he was cursed by god all of his generation uh with being slaves to the other two sons and since these were literally the only people on earth <laughs> uh it's Ham's descendants and everyone else's uh, versus everyone else. And so part of the thought process with some of the people is that uh, dark-skinned people uh, are Hamites. And so they bear the curse of Ham. They bear a particular sin that is common to their race. And so it is a right thing to enslave these people, not only because God said that these people were to be slaves, but also because everybody knows that these people are extremely sinful in in some specific, often unnamed way. And mm -hmm. so it is better for a Christian nation to capture and enslave them and bring uh, bring the, the the salvation message uh, of, of Jesus to them that way, then to let them go on uh, unaffected by civilization and die in their sinful state. Uh, so that's that's one of the uh, justifications. Uh, right, so it's the ordained by God in a way. This is just the the curse of Ham playing out in history. God ordained it. There's really nothing we could do about it. It's just the way things are. Right, uh, kind of how it goes down. It's not right. It's not their fault, you know. Yeah, they were born that way. Uh, I I heard people speak this way. Um, you know, when I was an adult, <laughs> they were born that way. You know, um, so um, it's it's not their fault, but it's it's our responsibility uh, to make sure that. Um, you know they they stay in line. We can't just let them run amok. Uh, so that's that's one of the things that people will say, uh, kind of in a de in a defense of slavery type thing. Another thing that people will say is, well, but slavery is a system that gives people who other otherwise would have been down and out, it gave them a chance uh, to live. You know, if you think about uh, people who are in war-torn parts of the world. Uh, so you you go back to ancient Israel and you know biblical times, and they were nations were always warring mm -hmm. with each other, and you know not every nation fared so well in war. So if yeah. you know the Israelites, they were protected by God, so they they won all the wars, and the nations <laughs> around them, they were um, 
devastated. And so uh, if left to their own devices, they would have just all died of homelessness and starvation. It was actually God's mercy. Right. We're doing them a favor. You're doing them a favor. You're helping these people. By, by enslaving them and then and, and then bringing them into your system. And now they've got three square meals and a roof. <laughs> you know, they're so much better off. Blessed be the name of the Lord right. under, under the system of slavery. And so the way Christians would talk about slavery, uh, the way Jews would talk about it then, the way Christians would talk about it now would be uh, slavery as a kind of a form of welfare. Mm. So, you know, if you if you didn't enslave these people, their lives would be worse. Mm. Uh, so that's that's another uh, justification uh, for slavery. There are one or two others, but uh, did you uh, did you want to comment on either of those? Have are you familiar with the, these lines of arguments? Yeah, I've heard about the curse of Ham being the black skin and the slave thing, or the dark skin. The other one I was going to say, going back to your point, you know, there's a secular argument as well. This is something I learned from the Dan Carlin episode. I'd never heard this that he talked about during the Renaissance when they were discovering ancient Greek and Hebrew or Greek and Roman Latin manuscripts that they realized that the Greek and Roman societies were built on slavery. It was it was a common thing. And the Enlightenment thinkers said, well, listen, um, we wouldn't have all these great advancements in civilization, all the philosophy, the medicine, the architecture, the mathematics, and all these things that the ancients, because they had time on their hands due to the slave system. They didn't have to work manually in the fields and in the factories and down in the mines and all. The slaves did all that work, thereby leaving the the thinkers, the philosophers, the, the really educated people time to, to give us all these great advancements in society. So on that level, they would also say, what's wrong with slavery? It's just it's just a God-ordained system, and certain people rise to the top, certain people are just going to be slaves, and that's just the way the gods, the Romans would have said the gods, but the Christians say God has ordained it. Well, uh, yes, and that's, that's not entirely a non-Christian argument uh, or non-biblical argument either, because I think the ancient Jews would have probably said that God uh, chose us as his uh, as his special nation. We are we are a nation of priests, um, and so we have a special relationship uh, with God and a special responsibility to the rest of the world as as your priests. Uh, and so we, you know, got God put us in this position. Um, we he didn't he didn't set us apart so that we could work our fingers to the bone. That's what you guys are for. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's just the system, <laughs> right? That's that's just the system. And God's economy. One of the one of the things that Christians will say, I know that you've heard this before, is that uh, while God didn't invent slavery, he he made it better. That the the Jewish slavery was a better form of slavery, right? Newer uh, and more and, improved. Right. <laughs> it was a it was a new improved slavery over the slavery of the peoples around them. And so when uh when God's people enslaved people, it was actually a better system <laughs> than than the one the people uh would have had. So this is this is kind of the thought process. And yes, yeah, you are right. The 
the people who have the talent to think and build and um, yeah, philosophize, yeah. philosophize, right? They should do that. And the the sacrifice that the rest of the world should make is they should be the the laborers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so this is these are these are some of the thought processes, and it's easy to say, well, these are these are secular arguments, but actually, all of these kind of secular arguments are echoed biblically uh, as well. And it and so it made it easy for. Christians to use these types of arguments because they were all pretty well supported uh, in Scripture. And then uh, I'll, I'll just give you one more uh, from the New Testament. Uh, the New Testament, the, the problem that Christians face there is that Jesus didn't abolish slavery. He not only did mm-hmm. fail to abolish slavery, he didn't say anything negative about it that he didn't take a stand or anything he didn't he didn't take a stand he took a stand on lots of things that's right i was just lots gonna of say controversial things he 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 had time to take stands on things that didn't either didn't make a lot of sense or just didn't matter right but so he, why not this one yeah so why not this one and so the christian has to kind of answer that one and their answer to that is well jesus didn't come to overturn the social systems and political systems and economic systems of the day. Jesus was all about repentance and salvation and, and getting people in right relationship. And so the, the things that the the abuses and atrocities by you know evil governments like Rome, Jesus didn't come to overturn Rome. He didn't come to save you on your taxes. He didn't come to do any of that. Uh, this is this is kind of the the argument, and another thing that goes along with that argument is he, he wanted to change the system from within, you know, and that, the grassroots thing. Thing, yeah. Eventually, a, a slavery will be abolished in a Christian system, right? Right, from the grassroots up, rather than from a top-down political sort of thing. Right. The problem is, it's just completely false. All all of that. It's just completely <laughs> bass awkward, false, and it comes from a person who has not studied Jesus at all. <laughs> right. So how do you really feel about it, David? He, he I'm not sure we're getting this. <laughs> come uh, in part to check to overturn the systems of the day. Yeah. He did that all the time. He right. did it when it came to marriage. He said uh, yeah, you know what? Moses allowed divorce. I say no more divorce. No, no. As if he could change the law. He he has no power. <laughs> but he but he's overturning this system of the day. And then if you ask uh, the uh, progressive Christians, well, you know, why did why did he change divorce? Well, uh, you know, he was he was uh, trying to establish something that would be better for women. Great. Okay, so he's he's overturning a system to establish something that would be better for women, but not for women slaves. Right. Uh, or women in abusive relationships. Right. He doesn't want to overturn that system. Uh, what about the system of, of family? Uh, family was an important Jewish system. It sure. was maybe the most important Jewish system. I, I would argue that it's been an important system today. Um, Jesus 
absolutely everything that he did was to overturn the way people thought about family. He was absolutely into overturning uh, that system. Uh, didn't he? He was fine with that. But slavery, eh? <laughs> Got nothing. Right. So uh, this this idea that somehow Jesus was apolitical and that he only cared about um, love and forgiveness and salvation and repentance, but he wasn't he wasn't trying to make any major social change is absolutely absurd. Right. Well, then you've got Paul. So then the next logical step is, well, here's Paul. All of his epistles, he turns around and says, slaves, obey your masters as unto the Lord. Masters, treat your slaves. Yes, masters, treat your slaves with respect and all that. But if you're a slave like Onesimus runs away from his master, he sends it back, says, go back to Philemon, go back to your master, you know, don't seek to run away. So Paul didn't overturn the system either. And yet he was a, uh, well, he was a Roman citizen if we read the text historically. So he knew the system inside and out. He never took a stand either. In fact, he told slaves to continue to serve their masters and not right. seek to be free. Also, also, you know, whoever is masquerading as Peter. Um, yeah. There, there is also instruction to not just obey your masters, but to love your masters, uh, even when they mistreat you. Yeah, and, even the cruel ones. Yeah. Even the cruel ones. And there's, there's a line, um, it, it's, a, it's a chilling line. It says, uh, if you, uh, in, in, if you think of God it, and you can bear the pain, he is pleased. Uh, this is, he's, Peter is talking about the worst forms of slavery you can think of. And he's, he's telling the people who are slaves, yeah, not, not only should you not escape, you should, you should have deep feelings of love for the people who are mistreating you. Yeah, and this is the New Testament on slavery. And so whether you're looking at the Old Testament on slavery, whether you're looking at Jesus on slavery, whether you're looking at uh, Paul uh, and Peter on slavery, it's it's all really the same message. Um, and so the, the Christian does have a problem there. And so they will they will just you know try to pretend like um, the New Testament, doesn't make any effort to make social change, and you will you will see this argument in in documents throughout uh, the the church in publications and things like that. If you if you uh, dig in and just some of the original documents and letters and the uh, the the newsletters and uh, circulars that they wrote, they they made this kind of argument all the time. They people make this argument today. Uh, Yes, the reason why the New Testament doesn't condemn slavery is because they're not trying to, uh, you know, mm -hmm. God's people are not trying to overturn social systems today, which is just not true in the least bit. And they uh, they're very inconsistent because they will make that particular argument for slavery, but when it comes to other things, then they're happy to say, "Oh yes, uh, Jesus was." Uh, uh, definitely overturning the um, social systems of the time. <laughs> right. It doesn't work. The argument doesn't work in every context. Well, and yet those verses that you just cited that we were talking about, these are the ones that are, are you know, let, claimed by slave masters during the slavery era. They are preached to their slaves because 
in addition to Frederick Douglass's biography or autobiography, there was another book I read called 30 Years a Slave. I don't know if you've come across it by Lewis Hughes. And this is a fascinating book. It's also on Spotify as well. But it's it's a it's an extraordinary example of a of a person who grew up, he was born into the slave system in the South. He lived during the Civil War. And after the Civil War, he was able to escape because of the chaos around Memphis where he lived at the time. And he escaped to Canada. Now, one of the things Lewis Hughes talks about, he says, I can't understand. You know, some of the Christian masters are some of the cruelest people, like Frederick Douglass says the same thing. And he says, yet on Sunday, they'll go to their church and sing about, you know, loving God and loving their fellow man. And on the same afternoon, come back and whip their slaves within an inch of their life. And he couldn't understand that juxtaposition, you know, as he was learning how to read and he's reading the Bible. He's saying, none of this makes sense. They're preaching those verses to us about how we should submit to our masters as unto the Lord. And they're going to church on a Sunday singing, praying, and coming home on the same day and whipping a slave for the most minor of infractions. When we come back from the break, we're going to get even more into this issue of arguments that have been advanced by Christians, both in the past as well as currently, even progressive Christians, for defending slavery from the Bible Then we're going to get into a deep dive of some Old Testament passages and take a really hard look at some of the justifications for slavery. In fact, the Bible does condone slavery, and we're going to look at those in depth later on and see what kind of conclusions we can draw from the whole thing. As you know, I've been doing this series on Doug Wilson, and I've battled a cold right now, so my voice is a little bit rough, but this is what's happening in our series. We're getting into the end of this thing now. We've got another couple episodes coming up. We've got one with Dr. Nick Geyer, and he's, of course, Doug Wilson's former professor of philosophy at the University of Idaho back in the 1970s, and I was able to catch up with him a while ago. In fact, speaking of which, this this episode with David Johnson was recorded so long ago, I was actually going to release it a lot sooner, and then toward the end, we start getting into the MindShift Zoom call that David was, was appearing actually back in October of 2022. So this recording is a little bit dated, but I went ahead and left it in because it reminded me that, in fact, David Johnson's coming back now to talk about this episode. We're going to talk about a Christian or biblical defense of slavery in our February MindShift Zoom call, and that call is actually scheduled a couple days after this episode drops. It's going to be on the 19th of Feb at 8 o'clock UK time, so we're going to have David Johnson back again. And then for the month of March, I've got Sam Terode. He's contacted me. He's part of our Closed Mindship Podcast Facebook group. He's got a fascinating story, and he wanted to drop in as the guest in March. So look for that coming up. How can you get access to these calls? These are great Zoom calls. We had one with Kate West last month. It was really good. I've uploaded that to the Patreon page as well as our Closed Mindship Podcast Facebook group. These are benefits that you get by supporting the show on Patreon. You can get access to these calls. We do them once a month. You can meet former guests, and it's a great way to kind of talk to them, get to meet them, get to know them a little bit for an hour. We do them around about the third Sunday of every month. So like I say, we're going to have David coming back on the 19th and then Sam in the month of March. And then I was mentioning what's coming up in the next couple episodes. We've got this episode with Dr. Nick Geyer dropping next, and then we're going to look at this issue of the final one, the toxic legacy of Doug Wilson. I want to look at, I've got at least four, but maybe more, sort of guys that are in his orbit, people that are taking his biblical patriarchy, his Christian patriarchy message into some really disturbing places. 
One of these things is something called the manosphere. If you've heard of it, this is something I'm going to unpack in more detail in that episode. We'll look at maybe four, depending on how much time we've got. It's going to be another long episode. I'm actually working on it now, putting all the research together. But I'm going to look at his toxic legacy sort of as we conclude this look at Doug Wilson. And then I've got some other interviews lined up. I've got one with Elgin Strait. I met him a while back ago. He's an American living in the UK. He lives down in London. He's a former Mooney. And we're going to do something in March. I think he might be our guest for our MindShift Zoom call in April. So we've got some stuff coming up with him. And I've also got an interview scheduled with Vinnie Koshis. And she's a former cult member. She was raised in a cult. And she wrote a book. I think it's called Cult Child. So we're in the process of setting that up. And so we've got some stuff in the pipeline, really good stuff. We're kind of getting back into some cult psychology and things like that, talking to former cult survivors and whatnot. So, and then the other thing really quick, I'll just mention, I'm lining up now another presentation with the Atheists of Florida. I've done a couple for them before, and I contacted them the other day, and I said, I have an idea for one based on all this research I've done on Doug Wilson and biblical patriarchy in general. I want to talk about the toxic effects of Christian or biblical patriarchy. So we're in the process of lining up a date with the Atheists of Florida, and as that gets closer, I'll put the links out so you can drop in on that call. It's a Zoom call. It's normally about an hour long. I do about a 45-minute presentation, and then there's time, about 15, 20 minutes for Q&A afterwards. I've done one on Dominion Theology. I've done one on cults, and it's always gone down really well. I've just absolutely enjoyed talking to the people that drop into these meetings for AOF. So that's something that's in the pipeline coming up. So anyway, let's get on back into the chat with David Johnson. We're going to look at this issue of a Christian or biblical defense of slavery, looking at some more of these arguments that have been advanced and then taking a deep dive at some of these biblical passages. So let's go back into the chat with David Johnson. That that actually takes me to another one of the justifications for slavery that you will uh, sometimes hear from Christians, uh, and when they're justifying biblical slavery, and some oftentimes they will use this to justify Southern slavery as well. And it is that the the slave was actually a prized possession. Uh-huh. Uh, he was a, a valuable uh, member of the household, treated well uh and 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 almost never it would have been a rare thing to treat a slave cruelly or or brutally um and so for a um for an idea of the biblical justification for this they will often say look joseph was sold into uh, slavery in egypt Right, he was the second. He he gained um, position to be the second in command in in all of Egypt. So you see, Timmy, <laughs> right, hey. little Johnny, little Susie, <laughs> <laughs> teaching us to children. That's the worst part, isn't it? <laughs> this is our. You got the flannel graphs on the board and everything. I can remember those going to Sunday school as a kid. <laughs> right. See that the slaves were they were well educated. They were they were given great jobs and positions of responsibility and power. And um even in the South, there are situations where slaves learn to write and do the bookkeeping. And you can find examples of this. Of course you can. Sure. Um, where uh, there some masters found it advantageous to have 
educated housewaves. Uh, yeah, that's what I was going to say, because Lewis Hughes, that book, 30 Years a Slave, he, as a young boy, his his master was a doctor, and he right. taught young Lewis how to heal people, and, and he taught him medicines and things like that, exactly as you say, with a view that young Lewis could grow up and be a valuable as, assistant to him and help heal his six slaves and things like that. So there, there's an example. And then later in life, Lewis becomes a, a dentist assistant after he becomes a free man. So they could make the case, yeah, look, he wouldn't have had that position had he not been trained by this white master of a doctor when he was a young boy. You see, it was advantageous, wasn't it? Right. And that's... So if you just kind of look at a couple of examples like that uh, and shut the door on it, which is what, what the Christian will want you to do, mm -hmm. don't, look, don't look closer. <laughs> they want you to hold up these examples as the typical... Uh, I, uh, idea of slavery, the, the yeah, thing that that's how the whole happened. system was, yeah. Right. That and that cruelty was was very rare, and that people were very very lucky to be slaves. I'll, I'll throw one other thing in here before the obvious debunking. Um, they will point to uh, history. First of all, uh, in in the Old Testament, because I try to show show the biblical side of this too. Uh, it kind of starts there. Uh, they will show where slaves would often choose to stay with their masters rather than be free. That, right. That is true. We can we can make a case for that. We can. Yeah. There's there is evidence of that, and there is uh, uh, evidence that slaves in the South, when they were freed, many of them stayed on uh, and became. Um, you know, workers on the on the plantation. Mm -hmm. uh, so all of, all of this is true, but um, incomplete, right? Uh, so, biblically uh, speaking, just addressing that one first, most slaves actually weren't treated like Joseph, <laughs> and. Uh, and uh, Joseph, uh, one gets the feeling was already pretty well educated <laughs> when he mm -hmm. when he went into slavery, and he was useful to the king because he could interpret dreams. Uh, so he, there is a very special set of circumstances where God ushered Joseph through this. For the average person, you had rules for slave owners such as you can beat them to within an inch of their lives. Uh, now, if they die, you're going to be held responsible. But if they if they live, you're okay. <laughs> so the reason mm -hmm. the reason you had laws like that is because beating slaves would have been pretty common. <laughs> no, right? Sorry, pretty pretty common. And the reason in um, American slavery, you would have slaves that would stay on, as opposed to going to do something else, is because. They, they're where would they go? Right. Yeah. Where they're, are they going to go? They're, right. Yeah. We've as soon as slavery is abolished, Jim Crow uh, is is there. So where exactly in society is the average slave without education going to go make their stand? <laughs> they're not, they're not. They know how to do one thing and one thing only. They can work a field, and guess what? The the 
master of the cotton field, still needed someone to work the cotton field. <laughs> so but work still needed to be done. Because in the case of Frederick Douglass and Lewis Hughes, Douglass had learned to be a ship's caulker, which is back in those days caulking between the planks of the ships. And he picked up that trade. And after he was he escaped, he was able to find employment doing the same thing. So he had he had a skill. And with this Lewis Hughes, he had a medical background. You know, so in those guys' cases, they were lucky, I suppose, that they had sort of marketable skills. But yeah, if you're working in the field all your life, that's the only skill you've actually you're not got. Gonna, you're not going to go to, um, you know, some employer and fill out an application and get a job. That's simply not going to happen. How it works. Yeah. Even uh, the slaves that were uh, lucky enough to escape to the north, they didn't find a, a terribly welcoming situation there because the north was also struggling with employment and um uh you know they they didn't have slaves in the north but they had um some pretty bad work <laughs> situation mm-hmm. there and there there still wasn't enough jobs for people and so the north wasn't particularly all that welcoming to freed slaves who now are trying to compete for the very few jobs that were exactly that were there so um yeah the 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 best arrangement for so many of them would have been to stay exactly where they were and keep working uh and and doing the thing that they're doing so right. it wasn't proof that the system was so great that they didn't want to leave right no they would have they would have left in a heartbeat had they had any and somewhere to go right and a lot of them did ended up in canada and different places well that's the route that wilson and wilkins go that you just articulated their argument is that slavery they say slavery as it existed in the south this is from their book southern slavery as it was they say it was a relationship based on mutual affection and confidence there has never been a multiracial society which has existed with such mutual intimacy and harmony in the history of the world, they go on to say, slave life was to them, the slaves, a life of plenty of simple pleasures of food, clothes, and good medical care. You know, so this is Wilson's argument that they had it great. They really did. The, these examples of cruelty, as you say, were rare, few and far between. And it was all done with a, in a biblical sense. So these slave owners in the South, yes, they owned slaves, but they did it according to biblical rules. So therefore... It was all sanctioned and okayed by God. Right, and the Holocaust the Holocaust didn't happen either. Um, yeah, well, Rush Denny was a Holocaust denier as well. Right. So, so you'll throw that in there. It's it's very it's very um convenient to say things and just rewrite history because there's there's always gonna be a certain continued contingent of people um who who don't study history, who who know nothing about history, but to to somehow paint slavery as a mutual system mutually beneficial for all parties involved right a mutually beneficial system to all parties involved is yeah is to simply lie about the status of history it is to know nothing of the middle passage um so i i don't i don't even think we need to spend too much time on that but these are these are some of the things that um supporters of, of biblical slavery and I, what I would imagine people who were supporters of 
a kind of a modern day slavery. These are some of the justifications mm-hmm. uh, that they would make. And so if you will um, permit me an indulgence, do you have time for an indulgence? Sure. There's always time for an indulgence. <laughs> okay. I need some indulgence. <laughs> we all do, I think. <laughs> um, I just want to I just want to read a text or two from Scripture that everybody knows. Uh, and the only thing better than me reading the text would be you reading the text. Do you have a Bible? Yeah. Uh, yes, but I can get on Bible Gateway That's quicker. What, that's what I mean by a Bible. <laughs> yeah, I I've actually got a Bible on my my monitor stand. Is a big old family Bible that somebody gave me years ago. It's perfect for a a monitor stand, but I haven't opened it in years. <laughs> okay, so what text do you want to look at? I'm on BibleGateway.com. I'm doing this off of memory, so uh, just bear with me. I might have to plot around. Uh, right. Leviticus, let's do Leviticus 25, and uh, let's start with 39. Verse 39. If, if your memory's any good, then it must be pretty good. So... Uh, the NIV, 35. Uh, okay, so it says... 39. If, 39? 35 is too early. All right, so 39 through what? Through, let's say, 46. Yeah, your memory is pretty good. Okay, here we go. So it says, verse 39, If any of your fellow Israelites become poor and sell themselves to you, do not make them work as slaves. I think it's worth mentioning the context. Mm-hmm. Moses is speaking to the Israelites just before they're going into the promised land. That's what we're happening here, right? Yes. So it goes on there to be treated as hired workers or temporary residents among you. They are to work for you until the year of Jubilee. Then they and their children are to be released and they will go back to their own clans and to the property of their ancestors. Because the Israelites are my servants whom I brought out of Egypt, they must not be sold as slaves. Do not okay. rule over them ruthlessly, but fear your God. Let me let me stop you right there. Right. Uh, I'm just getting going here, David. I'm know, about to I preach know. a sermon in this thing. I think, I think <laughs> verse 44, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are there are two groups that are that he's going to be uh, addressing. He's addressing the Israelites, but he's he's yes. addressing two types of slaves right here. I chose this because this is this is really the most clear passage on slavery. There, the Old Testament has a lot of things to say about slavery, and sometimes it's all over over the map. So he's saying for the Israelites, for those of you who are my chosen people, all right? Yeah, that's um, the distinction. Some of you are gonna, you know, mess up and get dirt poor. Okay, I I get that, and you're gonna want to sell yourself into slavery because you're the only asset you've got but those you israelites can't buy each other that way right you can't you can't own each other that way even if someone wants to sell themselves to you because they're in financial trouble you can't do it this is Mm -hmm. this is the um upshot of the first couple of verses there instead you have to treat them like a hired worker yeah, the indentured give, servants. Right. You can give them a job and and for a time of of service, but you can't own them. Uh okay, so that's that's the first part of it. Because you're Jews and uh God freed you from slavery, you're special, 
you got a special place in his heart and you can't go around slave enslaving each other when he free to you. So uh, you got to you got to treat them like hirelings. Right. So uh, that's the first point of your three point sermon. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so the, uh, also one other note, the year of Jubilee. Um, so this happened every seven years. This doesn't mean seven years from the time that you went into the service, whatever that seven year was. So my understanding is if you if they went into service with you on year six, they'll serve you for one year. Year of Jubilee was yeah. absolutely uh, everything. Everyone had to be. Right. Uh, so, yeah, it wasn't seven years from the time you were hired. It was. It could be six years and six months, and you work six months, and then you're free. You exactly. go back to your clans and and to your people and all that. Right. Ju- Jubilee was a set, a fixed time. Uh, right. So, uh, so that's that's the first piece of this. Now, the thing to the thing to understand about this too is when Christians start defending biblical slavery. They will often read that part of the text that you just read and stop mm. because they understand that their audience has never read this text. In fact, who knows? They may not have ever yeah. read this Most text. people never read Deuteronomy. If you ever, you know, if this is all you read, uh, then it sounds like, okay, well, slavery isn't really slavery. It's It really is just a, a job. It, it, it even says there, you know, it's you've got to treat them like a hireling. Um so they will say, you see, that's not slavery. Mm-hmm. Start, pick up verse 44. Right. So we got point number one. Now point number two, going on, verse 44. He says, your male and female slaves are to come from the nations around you. From them, you may buy slaves. You may also buy some of the temporary residents living among you and members of their clans born in your country, and they will become your property. You can bequeath them to your children as inherited property and can make them slaves for life, but you must not rule over your fellow Israelites ruthlessly. Right. It, so that last bit there kind of goes back to the, the first part we read from verse 39 mm-hmm. to 43. You can't rule over them ruthlessly. Now, these other guys that you get from the right. nations around you. That's fair game, baby. Them be slaves. Okay. Yeah. Those yeah. are, you, you see the distinction that's being made. On the one hand, you've got hired workers. On the other hand, you got slaves. The people from the nations around you, slaves. Um, where did these slaves come from? Uh, how did they become slaves? You know, because if you're buying a slave, someone's got to be selling a slave, right? So who's who's selling these people into slavery? These are actually the people's families. Um, well. <laughs> I want to look at one more passage so so that I can show you this too. But these are these are the um, people's families, uh, fathers selling their children into slavery, and and you can buy them. And when you buy them, you can not only own them as property; you can pass them down to your children in such a way. Once again, just. Mm-hmm. Things you just read, so that they're slaves forever. They're perpetual yeah. slaves. You can they pass them down to your children. Not be slaves. Um, they will be slaves until they die. I don't care how much they would like to be free. They are property. The yeah. Christian fails uh, in this area. So let me get you to read two other short passages. They're right next to each other. Uh, Exodus 21. Okay. I was just going to say, before we jump out of Deuteronomy, 
Uh, there's another third point, and that's your third point of your sermon. Um, he goes on to say that if there's a foreigner living in Israel and they become rich, now a, a, a Jew could sell themselves to that foreigner. Yes. But he goes on to say they retain the right of redemption after they've sold themselves or a relative can redeem them. So in other words, a, a, an Israelite could could be a slave of a foreigner, but even that's limited. They can be redeemed or bought back at the at the year of jubilee. So there's there's always an exemption for the Israelites. You're, whereas you're it, jubilee, no matter what, uh, but they can yeah. buy before then. Yeah. So a, a, an Israelite can't own a fellow Israelite, but a foreigner could. But even there's a caveat: uh, they can be redeemed. So there's that distinction. Okay. So what was the Exodus passage? Exodus twenty one. So we're going to read these out of order. Uh, right. Okay. So read verse sixteen. This is the um, this is the Christian's favorite passage. So let's. Oh yes. Give you give him that first. So he says, anyone who kidnaps someone is to be put to death, whether the victim has been sold or is still in the kidnapper's possession. Okay. So you see, you see, southern slavery was evil because they kidnapped people from Africa and brought them to America. The Bible doesn't condone that. And also, that couldn't have been what was going on in the Bible, because it says right here, that's not condoned. If you did that, you'd be put to death. Okay, mm-hmm. a couple of things. Um, the, I, I don't play the, um, the Hebrew card very often. <laughs> You're going to play it now. <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to, I don't even know if I am going to play it. Let me just say that if you um, uh, read study Bibles and you uh, look at the word uh, kidnap, it, um, and even some maybe older translations, you will see the word is someone who steals a, another person. Uh, so that's, that's a, that could be a slightly different thing than what we think of as, as kidnapping. I know it sounds the same and it's right. Easy. It's you a nuance. That. Yeah, it's it's a nuance. So if you steal a person, if you think about that for a moment, um the what you can steal is property. So it is among all things possible that what this is saying is if you steal another man's slave. Because mm-hmm. another man's slave was property. It just said so. <laughs> right. Over over Deuteronomy where we were, uh, so uh, this might be an injunction, for instance, not to steal uh, other people's slaves, because that would be uh, in the, in the um, second set of Ten Commandments. The "Thou should not covet thy neighbor's wife" actually reads more like "Thou should not covet uh, thou should not covet thy neighbor's slave." donkey or wife right you know they're they're kind of all in the they're lumped in there uh category there and so uh i tend to believe that this is what that is dealing with nonetheless uh we can we can deal with the word kidnap but we know that it doesn't actually mean you can't forcibly take someone as a slave because one of the three ways you became a slave in the Old Testament was you were conquered in war and you were taken as a war price. <laughs> you hardly, some people literally went into your land and took you <laughs> as uh, as a slave. So we can we can put an asterisk by that 
Um, I, I think the Christians maybe celebrate too much with that passage and are, would like to move on very quickly before. <laughs> but the the other passage, your same page, I'm sure, uh, verse seven uh, of uh, yep. Exodus um, twenty one. Well, just before I read that, I was going to say Dabney. I mentioned R.L. Dabney. He was an apologist in the pre-Civil War and after the Civil War for a Christian defense of slavery. And he talks about this verse, and he he says, look, we're off the hook in the South. We're not the ones kidnapping them from Africa. It was the British or the Arabs or it was somebody else. We're actually doing the slaves a favor when they do wash up on our shores by buying them and, and you know, sort of rehabilitating them as we're in a, in a Christian sort of way. So we're not culpable for kidnapping them, you know, so we're not furthering that system. We're making the best out of a, a bad situation, you know. So even back in the 19th century, there was that defense of this kind of uh, problem, huh? Okay, so verse 7, is that what you're saying? Yes. This is, you will never, the people who read verse 16, they will never read verse 7. It whiz over verse 7. Okay, so verse 7 says, if a man sells his daughter as a servant, she is not to go free as male servants do. Should we keep going? <laughs> you can if you want. The rules for female slaves and male slaves were different. And so here's where I will cop to a little bit of ignorance. You remember uh, back in Deuteronomy, uh, we were saying that, okay, the Jewish slaves, you couldn't, you couldn't keep them forever. Right. It had to be redeemed every seven years. But I'm pretty sure that would have been men, Jewish ah. men. And he's giving a different rule here for the, um, for the girls. And so does this apply just to the foreign uh, female slaves, or does this also apply to Jewish female slaves? I suspect it. Probably considering their um, their laws toward women, probably applied to Jewish female slaves as well. But what this passage uh, shows, you know, and we could we could talk for an hour about the differences between male and female. Sure. But this shows that actually there is a category of slave that could always be considered property and couldn't go free. And there were there were certain ways that they could go free there were certain things you know you could marry them uh and then if you well let me stop for a moment you could have sex with them and if you decided they weren't pleasing you you would have to uh sell them back right not give them back <laughs> you would have to sell them back or give them a chance to be to be bought back, or if you bought uh, a slave for your son, um, and your son didn't uh, like her after, uh, you know, trying trying out the merchandise, right? Trying out the goods, right? So um, we're we're talking about sex slavery, but in the Jewish system, is almost dis indistinguishable from marriage. To be honest, because marriage mm. is kind of a, kind of a type of sex slavery because. A man could marry a woman and divorce her simply by writing, uh, you know, I divorce you, <laughs> you know. And so I'm not entirely sure how different 
a woman sold in slavery was to a typical wife. But one of the things that you will hear Christians say if they do address this passage at all is, well, you see, these women would have gained the rights and privileges of a wife. And my question would be, can you can you delineate for me what the rights and privileges of a wife were at that time? Well, the, the passage itself does, because I'm looking at earlier verses two and following. So he says, if you buy a Hebrew servant, he serves you for six years. In the seventh year, he shall go free without paying anything. So there's your year of Jubilee thing. Uh, if he comes alone, he goes away alone. If he has a wife, when he comes, she can go with him. Now, the critical thing, if his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the woman and her children shall belong to her master. Only the man gets to go free. So right there, there's a distinction between the male and female children and and the, and the slave or the servant, I should say, uh, in the Hebrew servant case. So yeah, there's all these little distinctions between this is, this is one male and female servants. History of loopholes. Uh, so it's about loophole. Yeah. What? So what this what this would would be, uh, the way this would work is, a, a man would sell himself into slavery for a time. And he is, um, if what the what the shrewd master would do is give this male slave a wife. Exactly, he would give the slave a wife who who is also a slave, right? Uh, Knowing and, that if she had children, there they still belong to the master, right? Because then, then the passage goes on to say, if the if the slave turns around and says, "Wait a minute." I love my master. I want to stay because, of course, he can't take his wife and kids with him. Then they do the whole thing. They jam up against the door. They pierce his ear with it all, and yep. then he becomes, you know, part of that household. There so is a, it was a, there a very wily strategy. There is a song in um, saying in Christian youth camps called "Pierce My Ear." I've and never heard that one. Oh man, that's. And that's a ref- reference to this passage, the slaves of Christ. To this passage, uh, and the idea is that you are telling God, I don't want to go free. Uh, pierce my ear. Take me to the door this day. <laughs> uh, because My God, that's horrifying. Uh, <laughs> Why have I never heard this song, David? Sing this, this song. Uh, they don't understand. Yeah, the historical it, context of, of this I, passage. It, right, but if... So if this slave wants to actually keep his wife and kids, if they, he wants to keep his family together, then he would have to go back to the master and say, okay, I'll stay. And then he basically yeah. tells his right as a human being. Right. For, You're now a servant. Right. So this is the, the beautiful, fair, loving system that Christians are defending. Mm-hmm. Um. So if we could, we could go on um, yeah. a long time like this. Um, We're way so into the weeds now, aren't we? Right. Yeah, right. <laughs> there's, so, there's so much that you can say about biblical slavery, and it's it's fun for me anyway. It's um, it's how I think. But you don't you don't need to work as hard. So anyone listening uh, to this, and you hear some of these arguments maybe presented by Christians, uh, and you're thinking, okay, well, let me see, you know, where they here in this passage it says, okay, let me get this right. You don't have to do any of that. Right. What's the shortcut? What's the answer then? Here's here's the here's the shortcut. <laughs> okay, 
uh, you can just ask them uh, the question that I have asked on every podcast that I've ever discussed this on with a Christian. Uh, and you will get the same blank stare. Uh, the argument is over the moment you say, okay, tell you what, never mind what I think biblical slavery was. Let's just take your idea of biblical slavery. Is that something that you condone today? Is that something that you think would be good for your son or daughter today? Would you be okay if your daughter was confined to biblical slavery? Mm-hmm. Answer is, of course not. <laughs> yeah. and that's that's when uh, you will start getting um, if equivocations like, yeah, well, but it was, it was good for those people at that, at, at that mm -hmm. time place, not for us today. And they, in, in saying that they just undermine, uh, everything that they've been saying for the last 30 or 40 minutes. Uh, the fact is they do not believe it is good. They still think it is evil. They, they still yeah. think it's terrible. They do not want to see it today. They do not want to be a slave in a system, in the best slavery system they can think of. They would not, they would fight tooth and nail to keep their children out of the best slavery system they can think of. And so at the end of the day, it's just BS. And you can expose it with a single question. Don't even open the Bible. Don't write down these passages. Don't look at them again. They're awful. You don't need them. Yep. And yet you get a guy like John MacArthur, and this is exactly where he takes it because I came across a clip not long ago where it's from 2012, and he starts defending slavery on the same kind of line that Doug Wilson and Wilkins did, and he takes it into, he says, well, we need to take another look at this whole thing. If you had a good master, if you had a master that was you know, treating you and on the along biblical lines, as it were, as in a just system, that wouldn't be so bad. And he says, for a lot of poor people, it was actually a, a pretty good deal. You know, they they couldn't have found a better life. Then he takes it into yes, but as Christians, we're slaves of Christ, so we have a just master, we have a fair master, we've got a a loving master. So to be a slave, and all through the New Testament, Paul uses that language: we are slaves of Christ. And he talks about that as a model of what Christianity should be. So that's where MacArthur takes it. He says, look, I mean, to be a slave of Christ is the best thing we could ever hope for. You know, so you can see where they'll take it on that line. Right. But as a slave of Christ, I bet he didn't leave his family like Christ. Exactly. Uh, it's his to do. And I bet he didn't sell all of his possessions and give the money to the poor. And so he's all spiritualized. He, right. He's, he's a slave to Christ in name only. He's, he's not actually uh, a slave to anybody. So one of the one of the equivocations that uh, Christians will sometimes make is that, you know, we're if you have a job, it's it's slavery. You know, it's no, it's mm -hmm. not. <laughs> okay, this is just one of the redefinitions that they will try to uh, in false equivocations. Well, you know, biblical slavery was like a, you know, maybe a not so great job today. Wrong. Uh, I guarantee you, you would rather have a bad job today, <laughs> anywhere, <laughs> a bad job, worse than the best slavery you can come exactly. up with. Exactly. It's a horrible system. And if, if people are interested, I would really encourage, if you haven't read Frederick Douglass or Lewis Hughes, 12 Years a Slave, some of those books, they're out there, they're available for free on Spotify. I'm, I sound like I'm pushing Spotify, but because they're free audiobooks, you can get them on Spotify for nothing. It's an eye-opening uh, sort of uh, experience of what these men lived through 
what they experienced with their families during that very period you were talking about. Was it such a good system? Absolutely not. They were constantly trying to escape. I mean, what struck me about Frederick Douglass was the story about how he learned how to read. It's If people had ever read that book by Douglass, it's unbelievable. He was so desperate to learn how to read. He was like bribing school children on the streets with food that he would hoard from his own meals going hungry, and they would take their books home from school and teach him the letters. So they taught him the alphabet in back alleys and things like that. And he taught himself basically how to read off the back of learning the alphabet. And I mean, it's just the struggle, the human will to sort of overcome all these barricades that were placed in front of him. Once he learned how to read, that opened the world up to him, you know, and it just goes from there. He started learning about other countries of the world don't have slavery. This is not, this is an aberration here. America is not normal, you know, and that, that opened his eyes to the reality, hey, this system is deeply, deeply flawed. And he already knew that experientially, of course, growing up in that system, you know, but now he knew it was true because that was all sheltered from them. These slave owners did not want their slaves to learn how to read for that very reason. They'd be exposed to, you know, alternative ideas, seditious ideas. And that's exactly what, you know, happened to Douglas. Are you familiar with something called the Slave Bible? I've heard of it. Yeah, I think you need to tell us what it is. So um, there may be a, a more official name for it, but uh, it would be pretty easy to Google. Uh, the Slave Bible was cut down, uh, had about 90 or so percent of the full text of the Bible cut out. Um, and it had passages, pro-slavery passages, but it had other passages removed, such as um, uh, the people of God crying out for freedom. Ah, uh, yes. When the Israelites were slaves in Egypt. Right. They weren't, they, um, that's the freedom of the slaves, that's that's cut out. And, you know, things like... Uh, there, there's neither slave nor free in Galatians. That's mm -hmm. that, out of that's there. gone. Um, so any any kind of uh, pro-human uh, passage that suggested a type of equality among people that was removed. This was the Bible that slave masters taught their slaves. Right. They and, could read that Bible. Right. Or, or maybe and, not read it, but yeah. Or, or some derivation of it. Right. When when blacks were taught to read, they were taught to read the Bible. Um, right. That was that was the textbook for many blacks learning to read. But they were taught to read by white masters who had an agenda. Absolutely, <laughs> a vested so, interest. Even if they didn't have this particular uh, cut down Bible, they had a particular spin on all of the passages and stories that would make the slaves better slaves. Uh, so one of one of the things that was true in in our history, uh, in the Church of Christ, um, slaves were not originally allowed baptism. This is this is true in American history. Um, right. In, in general, uh, blacks didn't have souls. This was a this was an idea. Uh, it didn't it didn't live long, but that was part of the idea. And slave owning Christians were deeply against teaching the Bible 
to their slaves, but they were kind of sold a way of doing it so that um, if we teach them the Bible, certain passages of the Bible in a certain way, they would actually be better slaves, loyal to us, mm. uh, and they would um, they would give us better service. Right, they'd be more docile. Yeah. Because they're serving as unto God in that sense, then aren't they? Exactly. Submit to your masters at everything Paul says. The the their first education in reading was often from someone teaching them the Bible in a particular way mm. for the purpose of making them a better slave. Right. From the white man's point of view, obviously. Yes. Yeah, less troublesome and more obedient and all the rest of it. Yes. Not wanting to escape and yeah, everything else. And also, I mean, this is this is uh, kind of I, I don't want to get too far afield here. But, um, the black church today still has tendrils of this uh, mm. stretching all the way uh, from that history, because a lot of the uh, black worship and black communion has to do with looking forward beyond this time to a time when there will be justice and peace and uh, equality. Um, the white man could look to the now and cry out for relief now for whatever problems they were having. But if you were black and enslaved, your hope was in serving the Lord faithfully and then getting a prize after this life. That's very useful mm -hmm. because that way a, a person who is under the thumb of a slave owner they can they can understand the promises of god as something in the future after death and so they can they can remain docile and faithful and prayerful here and now and a lot of black worship really focuses on that time and place beyond the sky mm -hmm. uh that they're not so much looking at the here and now for the justice they're looking for the justice um you know from a theological perspective sure heaven is is their justice and they are to be uh faithful in suffering in the here and now so um yeah we we that history hasn't left us uh completely today that's yeah. still a part of us and still a part of black worship. Absolutely. And that's something I learned from the episode that you and I did. I was going to say, so the two takeaways I get from this conversation now is the one thing about what I'm trying to educate people. Cause guys like Doug Wilson, he's got such a huge platform. He's being platformed by John Piper and other people in that sort of orbit. And there's a lot of backstory to Doug Wilson that people don't know. And this is one of them. So you've got this defense of slavery that ends up in Christian homeschooling curriculum. That's a real concern. And then what you brought to the table in that episode was this idea of the deep-seated racism in the white church and how we saw that, we see that even today coming through. So I would encourage people to go back and find that episode that you and I talked about, because this is kind of the backstory behind a lot of what we talked about in that episode. Now, I know we need to wrap it up. You said we could talk for three hours about this. I think we could. Uh, we need to probably revisit this, but the good news is you're going to be coming back in October for our monthly MindShift Zoom call. So if people want to find out more about this, 
let me know and I will get you on that call with David. So I'm really looking forward to having you back in October. Good. That'll uh, that'll be fun. You can ask me all kinds of questions about oh, yeah. uh, red letters. I will I yes. will not give answers like go buy the book for four ninety nine. <laughs> you can uh, get it for free. Yeah, I won't. I won't even give that answer. I will. I will answer all questions fully. There will be. I will not hold anything back. <laughs> so yes, we had a great time. If before. you come and ask me about that, I'll. Uh, uh, I'll be. I'll be prepared to talk about all that. Right. So we'll talk about red letter. The other thing I was going to say before we go, and that is when you were talking about your Sunday sermon, skeptics, skeptics and seekers. I don't know if you ever have guests on there, but I would love to be a part of that because when I did my doctoral dissertation. It was on homiletics. It was on preaching. I went all the way back, studied Greek rhetoric, did all this stuff, broke the whole thing down. So I, I loved analyzing sermons anyway when I was an evangelical. So I would, if there's a way to be a part of that, I would oh, pl- yeah. plug me into I a would, sermon I would love and we'll, we'll tear it apart and break it down. <laughs> so if Definitely. that's on the table, I would love to be a part of that. So I, I invite people to come and sit in the pew with me and oh, I'd love it. Throwing with me. So no one has taken me up on it. <laughs> they they uh, no, I'm I, a pew sitter. If wait. I can make my objections and my points, you know, that's the one thing you never have when you're sitting in a pew. You have to listen to what the preacher says. So you yes. have to just whatever you're thinking, you can't just stand up and say, That's bullshit. I don't believe that, you know. You vote with your feet and go out. So that would be great. So let's see, the last couple of things, then how do people find you? You mentioned your show. Is that the best way just to go on the Patreon site and find you on the Red hey, Letters from, podcast? From my perspective, that's the best way to do it. But sure. actually, for, for if you don't want to pay me a dollar, fine, keep your dollar. Keep your damn dollar. <laughs> you cheapskate. Yeah, man. Cheap bastards out there. You know, you can actually pay more than a dollar if you like. I mean, you can. Right. You don't have to just do a dollar. No, you do. You know, but you can. You can just send me an email at skepticsandseekers at gmail dot com, or you can send me an email to redlettersbook at gmail dot com, or you can send an email to my personal uh, email at dot com. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> that's not going to happen. Is that kissmyass.com? I think that's what you said last time. I asked you, what, where can people find you? I think it was kissmyass.com, something like to that effect. So, I'm a bad man. You should that say. hasn't changed. <laughs> <laughs> All right, listen, I'm going to let you go, man. I am so looking forward to meeting back up with you in October for this Mindshift Zoom call. Thank you so much, David. Again, absolutely fantastic. Love doing the Red Letters suit with you. I'd love to be a part of that Skeptics and Seekers, so we'll, we can figure out something there, too. All right. Thank you. 